Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Craig Stephen is a wildlife epidemiologist and i can almost guarantee you that this podcast is going to make you think and is way outside the box of your typical hunting community hunting related podcast because we wanted to have a conversation with craig specifically around wildlife diseases uh have a very hard-hitting discussion about his thoughts on prevalence his thoughts on what are the issues facing us today in that world? And as you will hear, Craig is just a phenomenal speaker, but a wealth of knowledge when it comes to wildlife disease. So sit back and absolutely enjoy. You may have to rewind it a couple of times to really soak in what Craig is saying. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. You look like you could be playing Fortnite, you know? Never played it. I gave up once my kids were able to beat me on Mario Kart. Then that was, that was my peak of, that was my peak of video gaming. Listen, don't, I'm not going to let this out. Well, this is a public forum, so I guess I'm letting this out publicly. I do not enjoy losing on video games to my kids. And I oh. make it a point to continuously beat them. How old are your kids? 11 and 9 right now. Uh, you're at your peak now. Stop, stop when you're ahead. <laughs> yeah, that was How my old strategy. How old your kids again? Oh, 32 and 29. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. man. So oh, man. Listen to an old man. Stop when you're ahead. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to keep pushing. I'm going to keep... <laughs> like, I don't even try. They're into this whole, like, Pokemon, Minecraft stuff right now, and Terraria, and it's funny how, like, the oldest one is a, not a morning person at all. We all grump rip, 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 all the time in the mornings. 
And as soon as his little brother starts talking to him about, like, Pokemon challenges and Pokemon fights, he, like, perks up immediately. So I said, Eli, hey, when Elio's having a bad morning, can you just talk about Pokemon and, like, get him going? He's like, yes, I can do that, absolutely. Pokemon's an amazing franchise because my kids were into that when they were. Pokemon taught my oldest son to add the tens of thousands when he was four because they had the Mm. cards and he had to figure it out, right? And now my grandkids are starting to play with it. And they're, what, three and six. Right? You know, I mean, that, so that thing's been good. That's got a 40 Who year, owns that? 40 years That's span, the right? kick. Exactly. You who owns that. Exactly. Man. Um, where are you coming to us from, Craig? I am on Vancouver Island in a town called Nanoose Bay. Where is Nanoose Bay in relation to Maple Bay? You're about an hour and a half. I'm an hour and a half north of that. Which oh, isn't okay. truly north, because the island doesn't really run north-south, but it's easiest to say, say north of that. 100%. 100%. Craig Stevens, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. Thank you for having me. I, uh, I very much enjoy having podcasts with people that just sort of come into your life, come into your world, that are completely outside of the sphere. Uh, you are not in the hunting community, correct? Correct. <laughs> well, You're, I mean, sort, sort, sort of correct. <laughs> sort of correct in that. In explain that, explain yourself. It's, it's. I have done a lot of work with wildlife. I used to run Canada's National Wildlife Health Center, and of course, hunting's a big part of wildlife and wildlife health, particularly in Canada, where we have um, our indigenous communities have a constitutional right to access to sustainable, safe foods. Plus, we have a lot of, you know, a lot of. Um, issues around policy and hunting and issues around lead shot and issues around endangered species. So I am not in the hunting community in that I'm not a hunter, but I've had to work with, be part of, and consult with and collaborate with hunters for many years. That is a, a, an answer that I expected out of you. In our short interactions uh, on a Zoom call and then uh, beers, breakfast, and then being two keynote speakers at the Missouri Department of Natural Resources Conference. Um, I knew that, you know, you're a very thoughtful individual. You think a lot about things. You love what you do. You're passionate about the health space. Um, and I knew that there was a good intersection in, uh, between the health space and who hunters are, what hunting's doing, that kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I'm very excited about, to have you here. Um, let me ask this as a general background question. You you do not hunt. You've never hunted. Never hunted. Fished. It was. I, I grew up on the coast, so people went fishing where I was. Not a big. And on, on the islands, where I am now, because I've lived around this sort of this area for a long time, there are people who hunt. Many of them go to the mainland for their moose. Our deer here are Columbia black-tailed deer, so they're not massive mm-hmm. deer. Mm-hmm. Um, as a kid growing up, there were much many more waterfowl hunters. Um. Yeah, but yeah, that's it's not a, it's not as big of a community say it is on the mainland, either British Columbia or certainly on the prairies and other places. You've got an exquisite fishery around you. Like I was with um, Jim Shockley in Maple Bay. He's a very, very, very famous hunting influencer. He lives just down the road from me. He's got a natural his- history museum um, because one of his guilty pleasures was to go hunting all around the world, and then he would spend days in the local flea markets picking up art and historical artifacts and stuff like that. 
Um, he's built a ph phenomenal museum called the Hand of Man. But he, I was fortunate enough to go fishing, quote-unquote, with him. And we went fishing for crab. Uh -huh. We went fishing for spotted prawns. Um, and it was an unbelievable meal. They came out of the ocean. And he, didn't, he just boiled them with a little bit of water, a little bit of salt. And that was it. And I was like, this is unbelievable meal. Well, when I was used to be, when I first started off, as I think you've talked before, I, I, was a, I was a veterinarian in mixed practice for a number of years. And I used to get paid in seafood. Yes, people couldn't what? afford it. People couldn't afford it. So, give so that was like a clam. barter trade system? Yeah, why not? But the, but the funny thing, Robbie, <laughs> is, so it just, you've, you've it reminds me, because you were involved in the uh, Gulf Oil, or the Gulf of Mexico spill, right? Correct. And I remember hearing uh, uh, Obama said, we're going to take this back to where it was before the spill. Mm. which really wasn't the healthiest ecosystem in the world before the spill. Mm. So when you come back and say, it's a wonderful fisheries, having grown up in this coast, it's a dying fisheries. So oh, when, I was, when I was a kid in high school, you'd work the summer in a fishing boat and you'd have enough, I'll show you how old I am, you'd have enough to come back and buy a Trans Am. Wow. Now those fishermen maybe have a couple of days a year they can fish because the stocks are so depleted. Oh man. On the bay, which you can't see just across the road from me, scuba diving i'd go out there and you'd be well, there'd be wolf fields and rockfish and all the, and now they're hard to see so the fisheries the fisheries have declined substantially and then we've got the other problem so it's all about perspective i'm just going to bring this have up they right? declined have they declined substantially because of over harvesting or over exploitation environmental over exploitation depends on the species of course uh -huh. some species are doing okay the crab are doing okay right um, salmon, we're just, we're, we're going to fish them the same way we fished East Coast cod. All right. The economic yeah. interests, the cultural interests, they'll, they'll, they'll outweigh the conservation interests. So we've got over-exploitation. We've got a lot of habitat loss. Uh -huh. People like houses, the same place fish like to spawn, right? It's a lot of habitat, a lot of pollution, right? People, uh -huh. people view the oceans as this pristine environment. You know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting observation. People, people always look, have some nice wild Chinook salmon healthy, but then you've got orcas, killer whales, who primarily eat those, who could be so contaminated, you almost need a toxic waste permit to bury them on land. Yeah. So we got, you know, so we've got this bioaccumulation. So you've got that going on. And now, of course, climate change. So for example, the river temperatures in some places around here are getting too hot for salmon to survive in. So this is why you're seeing California, Oregon runs disappearing. So it's death uh -huh. by a thousand cuts, uh -huh. unfortunately. Uh -huh. So, so, so this is, I mean, this is always important because you know, I, I bring this up because you and I had that, we were at that conservation meeting, which are baseline, uh -huh. right? And I'm getting to be the old guy who we're talking about grandkids playing Pokemon that you, you know, and having lived in an area, you see those changes over time. Uh -huh. So what, what do we try to achieve when we talk about a, a great fishery? How do we, and how do we manage that fishery? So for example, here in, in British Columbia, there's a big push for more salmon hatcheries, more salmon hatcheries, more salmon hatcheries, because it puts product in the ocean. <laughs> but boy, you read some of the ecological literature and salmon hatcheries are not a very good idea. <laughs> you know? And so it's a challenging question of how you balance out the different demands on, the, on that resource, um, the different perspectives on that resource, and what you manage it to. Because <laughs> it's sure not the fisheries that when I was a kid growing up. Absolutely uh -huh. not. Uh -huh. I mean, the, the, the boats, the, the wharfs used to be littered with fishing boats. Now they're retired people sailboats. Yep. Right? Yep. Craig, are you seeing the same thing in your experience? Could you sort of make the same analogy for 
wildlife and humans in the terrestrial landscape sort of writ large on the global scale? I know that's a big, big, well, big question. It's a big question. I think that so my view of my view of anything being healthy is it has to have options, right? A healthy farm, the farmer needs to have some money in the bank. A healthy deer has to have some meat on the bones before the winter comes. You know, they have to have genetic diversity in them from case their environment changes. And we've had a history of managing our ecosystem for wildlife for a select group of species, right? So I know, I know a veterinarian in the U.S. who's, who's the non-game veterinarian. Okay. And she says, I deal with species that nobody else cares about. And she has zero money for it. And she has zero, right? Because our focus has been to keep game animals on the land or in the air or in the water. But, but and that's, that, and in some that places, a, that's, hom that's homogenized some of those ecosystems. Right. But isn't right? that a circumstance of value? Oh, sure. Humans, humans are putting the value on they want that species to uh, fulfill a particular desire or a need. They either like that animal or, or in some cases, it's good intentions not gone wild, that's being a bit too, <laughs> but like, like look, look at some of the um, waterfowl. So again, going back to when I was a kid, uh, I've seen many more swans now uh, coming back. And that's because people have worked to conserve them. Uh, <laughs> on the flip side, though, you look at snow geese and mallard, and they're just, of course, the farmer's fields are getting destroyed with them on their southern migration because the numbers have just skyrocketed. Because Ducks Unlimited have done a really good job in getting ducks back and, you know, other groups like that. But, you know, we, so, so it's, it's, it goes back to what we were saying when we're doing this conservation, where, where, what's it good enough? When's, mm. it, when's it now unintended consequences of having too many on the land now because those ducks and geese, now, you know, what, what's, what's the association between burgeoning number of ducks and geese, um, uh, fragmentation of their habitat with agriculture, uh, pollution stresses, and all this even influenza issues we're having around the world right now because we know waterfowl are natural hosts. It, it literally came out yesterday, maybe. Did you see that whole like first human case of H one H H and V one bird flu in China? I think, I'm it's, I think it, it might have been Taiwan. I saw one I think last week. Yep. Uh, it's not the first bird flu case, but of this particular okay. circulating strain, right? Because flus, fl the, the influenza virus, is a very plastic virus. So it, every year, this is why it's so difficult to control influenza because the virus mixes and we get a new one every year, sort of, right? We get three or four new strains because what'll happen is influenza will come onto a cell and what they do is they, they grab onto a cell, they inject the genetic material into that cell, hijack the, shells, the cell's machinery to make more copies of it, burst that cell and now we've got more viruses. But when two different types of flu get that, your genetic material mixes. And now maybe we have a whole brand new one. Mm -hmm. All right. So now we're talking about this. And that's common practice. It depends on the virus, right? But, okay. but flu is very good at that. And okay. it does it routinely. And this is why right now it's this particular subset that people are worried about because so flus normally are in waterfowl, wild waterfowl. And usually, usually doesn't do much to them. In fact, in fact, you tend to find it in their intestinal tract more than in their respiratory tract. And uh, ducks do this interesting thing called cloacal drinking. So the cloaca is where they're reproductive and, and your general tracts open. And when they sit on cold, when they sit in the water, they'll suck some water up. So they're in fact mm. exposing themselves that way instead of breathing it in and do, 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 they go around. But occasionally then that will spill into poultry or other animals that modify it. And then some might have a strain that gets to a person. Most of them don't. Most of the bird ones have liked the bird one. But now we're seeing this spill across species. 
And so why people are worried about this particular avian influenza is we're seeing more dead wild birds, which we usually yep. don't get, including yep. birds of prey, waterfowl, grain, stork all over. We're seeing mammals getting the same one. Wild mammals, there's been fox cases and seals cases. And then it gets into people. And the, and the concern is, you know, humanity hasn't evolved necessarily to you routinely get exposed to the bird strains. And if we have a bird strain that now can affect mammals, I mean, when we, everybody's talked about, about a COVID. Mm. Prior to COVID, the big pandemic was going to be a coronavirus or influenza. Like an H1N1 in the Or in some the combination. Form. Some right. combination. So, and, and so this is why I think people are worried about uh, cases. Now, we have had human cases of bird flu in the past. And mm -hmm. they were the, some of the first ones ever, re, ever recorded, not ever occurred, right? And now we've got the same issue because it, this, is, this particular avian influenza is costing the poultry industries billions of dollars mm -hmm. around the world. Well, Craig, isn't the isn't the, what you just said a symptom of today's society recorded versus has ever occurred? Well, as our Do technology we... gets better and better, we're able to look at things easier and easier, right, and faster and faster. So uh, again, year, years ago, I was looking at an outbreak in a community of a waterborne disease because I was doing now as an epidemiologist. And, you know, when I, went to, when I went to vet school, you used blood auger plates, right? And you looked if it was catalase this and oxidase that, and you put drops of stuff on it, and then you, you what your taxonomic key. When I was doing that outbreak in the watershed, we could now subtype them based on certain chemical tests you could do. Now you can do them in, you know, this micromolecular, right? So we can, we can see differences amongst those groups. That's the same as, you know, in, in taxonomy. It's any sort of taxonomy. Now, did it, did it matter that the community had a Campylobacter outbreak or Campylobacter jejuni outbreak or Campylobacter jejuni serotype 1 or Campylobacter jejuni serotype? You know, like you get finer and finer mm -hmm. details. They help you trace things better and they help you document things better. Now, in terms of control, the simple thing was we had to make sure that the water safety, the water source was protected, right? That, so, so in some ways, it helped us to try to identify and trace down where it was. But in other ways, you can get by with a lot of basic principles of proper hygiene, proper health, proper all these yep. sorts of things, right? And we yep. sometimes get lost on those actions as we try to chase things further and further and further. These transmission mechanisms you just talked about from water, one that I remember dealing with avian influenza, and I don't know, I think it was last October. Potentially, as, as waterfowlers were trekking north out of America into Canada, I think it was the U.S., yes, the U.S., USDA APHIS, put in place, and they reversed it, but initially they put in place that you were not allowed to bring any birds back that you harvested in Canada back to the U.S. because of fears of H1N1 transmission. Mm-hmm. It sounded ludicrous, Craig, because we were bringing back, let's just say, 50 dozen, 100 dozen birds from 100 hunters, yet you had millions of live birds streaming across the border. Uh -huh. Make no oh, sense. So I think, I think it, it makes sense if you realize that disease control is not just a biological issue. 
Now, before I come back, let me just tell you a, a quick story about border control and wildfowl, waterfowl. <laughs> when, I was, when I was a student, right, a veterinary student, I worked for a clinic that was near the Canada-U.S. border. And there's a little jut into the U.S. called Point Roberts. It's just this really tiny, small community that's isolated. It's just a little off of peninsula in Canada. Okay. So they used all the services in Canada, all that. So somebody called us up one day and said, they found a mallard, I think it was a mallard, with a broken, uh, broken wing. Could we come and get it and look after it? Because did a lot of wildlife stuff, right? Was Craig, this the barter and trade community that you lived no, this, in? No, this one I was a student. Okay. Was a student. <laughs> so I drive down to the States. And the border guards, this is all prior to, you know, 9-11. So it was oh, so the easier. birds in the United States. The birds in the United States. And okay. I go down there and say, I got this sick bird. Okay, Craig, yeah, there you go. Come back up. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, well, I hurt duck. He goes, you're not allowed to. You need permits to bring... It's a migratory bird, right? You can't just bring migratory birds across the border. I said, ah, geez, but you know, it's got to fix it. It's broken. He says, I know it's really important. He says, will it fly? I said, he can't fly. <laughs> he says, he says, can it walk? I said, yes. He says, okay, come here. And we, stood at, we stood at the national border, put the duck out, shoo, shoo, shoo. No it walked way. across the He says, oh my it, so. God. So, I mean, that's, that's the funny. So, but, but please that, tell me you have video of that. Oh, back in those days, you have to make chalk drawings. There's no video around there. <laughs> um, no, but so but what, what that comes down to is people need to recognize that any disease control decisions has biological epidemiological information available to it. It has economic um, information tied to it. It has litigation tied to it, right? So for example, if somebody traced back that Robbie brought these ducks across the border and that got into Joe's farm, poultry farm, and that cost him a billion dollars, there's a liability issue there as well. So when people are making disease control decisions, it's not just going to be based on the biology. Uh -huh. the, the second issue is there's the issue of being precautionary as well. So with, with COVID, the world had never seen that before. We had never had a global pandemic of a coronavirus like that before at, that could spread as rapidly as it could. And so people were always having to adaptively manage Right. And, and, the, and, you know, there's that first public health saying of first do no harm. So the, 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 the knee jerk, not the knee jerk, that's a bad thing. The beginning point is we need to do something that will make sure lives aren't put at loss. Right. Then as we learn and we develop, we say, okay, well, actually, this doesn't make sense or that doesn't make sense because they've heard other, other values are here. And that's happened with a lot of the COVID. Hmm. Right. A lot of the science got modified because of economic concerns or social concerns. And it's the same with some of these other viruses that there's a level of comfort because you become familiar with it, or the decision maker have now learned some more information. But in the middle of an emergency, it's like, it's like I used to be a firefighter. You know, we didn't debate the cause of the fire. We put water on it. Then you do figure out the investigation, right? Mm -hmm. so, so I think sometimes we have to remember that in the, in the beginning of any sort of urgent event, these are people or having to make big decisions with big implications, and you don't want to be the person who messes up and somebody or something dies or you get sued or you get... And, and the litigation thing's an important one to keep in mind. And of course, nowadays, being pillared in the media. <laughs> so there's all these things that are happening when people are making decisions about how to respond to a new disease event. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, very astute point in that it's very difficult to see outside of the blinders that is you're limiting opportunity to bring a resource home. And I think the outcome at the end of the day, it was almost like, 
You can bring the breast meat home. You can bring all the meat home. You just can't bring the carcass home or something like that. I can't really remember viscera. how. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, I, I can't remember how it played out. But well, you're absolutely you know, there's, right. There's, there's many good examples, Robbie, where... So first off, we have to stop and say, all disease regulations for movement of pieces and pathogens are wrong in the sense that they're based on political boundaries and on ecological boundaries. Correct. Right? So North America should have an integrated wildlife health regulatory regime for any species that cross border, which are fish and migratory waterfowl and border animals, you know, the raccoon that lives on the border of New York and Ontario, right? So we, and, and, and then we've got interstate regulation. <clears throat> and those, those political boundaries are entirely artificial. They were not designed for the movement of animals. They were not designed to think of their conservation, of their health, of their management. So right away, we were putting this huge artificial structure onto a system that's going to be illogical for its management, right? And so, but we know, for example, foot and mouth disease, you know, Uncle Jimmy went back and visited his friends in Europe where foot and mouth disease brings the sausages back. Ah, it's just my sausages. He had a massive outbreak of foot and mouth disease. That happened in Canada many years ago, right? So we have that right now, African swine fever. It's a huge issue that's, that's having big implications on the pork industry. It's going to be implication for wild pig management. And that easily moves with foodstuffs across borders. And the problem is, even if the, even if the, ecolo- or the uh, political boundaries are artificial, if it's in Canada, then the Can- Canadian government has, they have to spend resources to fix it. Their trade gets shut down there because, you know, everything falls Yeah, there's massive implications. Right? So, yeah, and that's... so you, you, have to, you, know, you have to guard your borders in the sense of once it's here, it's your responsibility to deal with it. Yep, yep. Yeah, the litigation risk, if anyone's ever been sued or has been threatened to be sued, you know what that feels like. It's just... And it's not just even... I mean, litigation's part of it, but it's, you know, you're a government agency and here's your budget. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I've got to spend this much more because I have this outbreak to deal with. That means everything else will fall by the wayside because my budget's now blown for the year. So there's a resource issue, even if we're not worrying about litigation, right? And there's the fact, so right now, I mean, when, when um, even though even influenza, you can zone it. I mean, countries, many countries will immediately say, shut the borders until you can prove it's safe. So Canadian farmers, U.S. farmers, not only have they had farms depopulated, but some countries stopped trade. Yeah. So this was, a, this was a big issue with, for example, um, Elk farming and CWD, right? Countries would were banning all Canadian. It was um, antler velvet export. Okay. Until you can prove that the antlers couldn't transmit the disease, because sometimes that protects their own market, right? So, so you can't right now internationally. There's there's the WTO World Trade Organization has all these rules about how you can and cannot use disease to prohibit the free movement of animal products or animals. And there's all sorts of rules, and countries are members of the World Organization for Animal Health, and they follow those rules, but they still use it as an advantage for trade. Yeah. Even if it gives their country, you know, six months as this works through the WTO process. Oh, no, you're right. Oops, we were wrong. Bring your eggs in. Yeah. Right? So there's, there's, again, there's this political aspect to disease management, because remember, animals still are commodities. <laughs> On the world sector, they're commodities. Craig, Craig do, you, do you believe that the prevalence 
of wildlife disease is increasing. Let's take away the idea of that we're a more connected world, we're a more educated world, better technology. I know those are, are really large confounding variables. But are we seeing more human-wildlife disease interactions today just simply because our population is much bigger? Well, yes, two different questions there. Yes, about interactions and prevalence. Let's talk about interactions then. So uh, my old mentor told me interesting things happen at edges. Edges of time, like seasons. Edges of space, like a farm and a forest interface. We have increasingly gone into where wildlife was. <laughs> Suburbanization, industrialization, logging, mining, right? So we've created new road networks. I mean, very interesting work about how wolf and moose predation has changed because of roads built for the oil and gas industry and allows different movement patterns. So we have created a larger number of interfaces and our population has grown exponentially. So you, you cannot uh, assume that the level of interaction between wildlife people in 2023 is the same in 1923, simply for those reasons, right? We've got this other factor, though, that 70% of the world is urbanized. Correct. Right? Uh, now, urban doesn't, have, doesn't mean New York City, right? Uh, you know, a smaller town. I mean, I've got where I am at sort of acreages, but it's still urban, mm -hmm. right? In the sense that we're not living out in a cabin in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Now, urbanization creates a different type of interface. And we, it's funny, we often consider urban wildlife not as wildlife, but as pests, right? Any animal that does good around us, we call, we call them pests, it seems. Well, we it, love them until they eat the daisies, right? Or, yeah, or they're just getting our way or whatever. So, so we have not only changed the interfaces, but we've changed our interactions where most people interact with wildlife. Right. In the old, like I've got deer running through my yard on a regular basis. I've got eagles that keep eating my chickens. I've got, right, I've got 100 sea lions out in the bay right now. I have wildlife all around me. But person living in downtown Vancouver, I mean, they'll see a fox run there or they'll see a coyote or something like that. So the bulk of the world has a very limited number of species interactions and they're very indirect and, uh, how shall I say it, inapparent. Mm -hmm. Fleeting. Right? Or not, you don't even notice it. You don't notice that the rat has defecated in your house and exposed you to hand hand virus or whatever. Right? And then on the flip side, where we aren't, we have created more interfaces. You know, we've kept pushing our suburbanization, our agriculture, our logging to create increased connectivity. So, interesting things happen at edges. We've created many more edges. So we have fewer people with many more edges and a lot of people with fewer edges, but in apparent edges, if that makes sense, right? That makes complete sense, actually. Right? So prevalence, then. Next. Well, you see, you're talking to an epidemiologist. And what does prevalence mean? Because we use that term very frequently. Prevalence is basically the number of old and new cases in a population per unit population. Correct. The problem with this is we often, for most wildlife species, only have guesses at what the base population numbers are. Because we can't afford in a lot of places to do annual population census and surveys. So there's On the one both problem. sides of the equation, right? Wildlife and human. Well, yes. I mean, so we're talking about wildlife right now. So in northern Canada, a colleague of mine who are managing caribou, they can only afford over that large area to do a population survey for estimating abundance of the animal, the population, once every five years. Right? So 
and they can have tremendous switch swings in those times. So we got a problem first of knowing the baseline. And, and then the second part is the wildlife we sample, which baseline does that refer to? So in other words, within populations or subpopulations, so it's like, it's like estimating the prevalence of, let's go back to influenza, in the Noose Bay where I live, using the Canadian human population as my base population. Well, no, I should use the number of people that live in the Noose, 5,000 people. Right, right, right. So that's another problem. Then the third problem is, to estimate prevalence, you have to have a system that's most likely to catch the cases. So most of our wildlife disease stuff does not sample the population homogeneously. So we don't do neonates, the new babies. We don't do even the young ones often. We don't do the ones that recovered because we mostly deal with the dead pile, right? And when <laughs> we go and sample stuff, then we got problems of trap bias and sampling bias. So we have an un, we have a biased group of animals for which we're now saying, well, here's the number of cases we have. Not, but, but you haven't captured any of the non-cases that it may be not come into your traps. When we use hunter samples to estimate things, well, of course, those are only hunted animals. And hunters don't take a random sample of the population, right? So there's all these things where, where we say prevalence has changed. Well, let's, let's, not, let's get rid of prevalence and say number of sickies detected. Mm. Let's just talk about that. The number of sickies and deads have increased for a couple of reasons. One is that, of course, right now there's this focus on wildlife because of their association with an emerging and pandemic infections. Governments are paying whack loads of money for people to go and swab things or get things or kids, right? So we, we have an increased uh, effort to try to get some of these animals and a very limited subset of animals. And going back to our earlier conversation, we have new technology that can find and look for things that we couldn't find and look for as quickly or as, as um, economically as we can now. I mean... Several years ago, the, the stuff, the genetic stuff they do now to detect pathogens or traces of pathogens would have been cost prohibitive for a few animals. Now they can run thousands through and it's affordable. So we've had a change of technology. We've had a change of effort. We've had this changing of the edges. So there's more likely, a higher likelihood to contact that dead or sick animal. And so, of course, and we have increased reporting. Either public reporting because the media pick up on the stories now. The media would not have cared 20 years ago if a duck was sick, right? Now a duck with influenza makes front page news. Mm -hmm. So we have a number of factors that can change our perspective, our perspective of, of what's happened with wildlife disease. Now putting all those things online, whether, we're, whether the baseline has shifted or not, the reality is we have come more aware of the role of disease in regulating wild populations. So Robbie, I don't know, you know, you're, 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 uh, you're probably not of that era when you were going through ecology school where they said you, ecology plays no role in population regulation. That used, that used to be the old ecology dogma. It was a density-dependent regulating factor. When the population got too high, disease took them back, back down to carrying capacity. Don't worry about disease. That was the mantra for, for um, wildlife diseases for many, many years. So wildlife disease was almost a curiosity more than a management concern. But now we see things where populations are impacted. You know, uh, world amphibians, the frogs have just almost disappeared in many, some have gone extinct because of a disease called chytridiomycosis, a fungus mm -hmm. that spread. We've seen Tasmanian devil, Tasmanian devil populations crash because of a viral spread cancer that they get. We've <laughs> seen 
the social and population impacts of things like CWD, where we, where, where, you know, get into the debate of what that means for the populations, the politics, the perceptions, and the money spent to deal with that issue is astronomical. Correct. So now we're starting to see that diseases are actually population regulating. And even if they're not, they have great public concern now, partly because people want access to that safe and secure food. And there's values over, you know, how do you deal with uncertainty? So, so it has become something that you can't ignore if you're regulating wildlife. And, and unfortunately, the association of wildlife with emerging infectious diseases has also tended to vilify wildlife. You know, wildlife now are a source to be feared because they carry these things that could, you know, wipe us up. And, and that has, that can taint the way people go out and look at these things um, as well and how they interpret those findings. So we have a lot of things to say. I, I would be happy to say our realization of the importance of wildlife disease has grown tremendously in the last 20 years. There's more attention on wildlife health and disease than probably there ever has been in history right now. And yet it is still grossly underfunded. And mm. it doesn't always necessarily work with, uh, with the wildlife at heart. Uh -huh. Right? We'll get more money to study a disease that might affect us than a disease that's driving species to extinction. Who's going like to pay for frog? Who's going to pay for frog fungus? Right. 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 right? But if, um, but if it's something we value, we'll put money into that, right? Craig, in your position as an epidemiologist, obviously dealing with a lot of wildlife disease issues around the world, what, in your opinion, and I know this is a tough question, and I'm posing it to an academic, and you're not allowed to say it depends, okay? What are the top three most concerning wildlife diseases in your mind? Uh, well, um, they're not infectious. Right? Everybody uh, wants to go to infectious diseases. Let's like say non-infection diseases. If, if non-infectious. If I looked at data in Canada when I ran the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative, um, trauma is a huge issue for wildlife. Hit by cars, run into windows. Getting but is by, that a disease? By cats. Sure, it's trauma. A disease is just a disorder of form and function. Right? Okay. So this is, I bring that up because the narrative right now is when we talk about disease, we talk about infectious diseases. And the problem with that is if we fixate on infectious diseases, which are important, I'm not saying they're not important, we're not actually focusing on the things that animals don't, our animals are actually being affected by. So I'll, I'll make an argument to be a little bit controversial. The most important disease, malnutrition. And I say that because we're destroying the habitat that they need for their food. Right? In a lot of places, habitat destruction is a huge threat to wildlife right now. Say right? again the definition of disease. Disease is something, form and function? An, ab an abnormality in form and function. An abnormality of form and function. So a broken arm is an abnormality in your form. Diabetes is an abnormality in your function. Right? So, so the other thing, the other thing, Robbie, to remember. So, how is, do we struggle? Like, I would struggle. Like, I'm struggling in my brain right now, right? To, I get disease being, I sorry, I get diabetes being a disease. I do not get, uh, uh, I don't see a broken arm as a disease. Yeah, that's just because of the way we frequently use it. But, but you okay. know, in, in the in the part of or the general definition of it, that's that's what it is, right? Okay. When I was going through university. 
God, I tell my stories like I'm an old, really old man now. It's getting, <laughs> getting bad. Getting bad, right? Back in my day. No, back, so I was, I was in university in the 80s, right? We were all going to die of pollution and nuclear war. Okay? You know, the, the, the ghost of Rachel Carson was still to be heard. Um, apart from plastic, you very, very rarely see a story about pollution and wildlife. But the world's no less polluted than it was in the 80s. So these disease things come in fads, right? And, and it's what's facing us today right now. So surely there's an interaction between the fact we're making things more polluted and they're more susceptible to some of these infections, right? People are worried about eating a insert whatever wildlife because I might get salmonella, but they're not talking about the dioxins. The story yeah. I was talking to you about salmon earlier, about being hugely contaminated, um, right? So a disease du jour by that, but, but what, what I mean by our tension, well, I'll put it back. I've, I've discovered a new disease. Here's my new disease. It's called apocalyptic attention deficit disorder. <laughs> okay? okay. Or, or global collective amnesia. We have a society have, have a history of finding a problem, getting freaked about the problem, Investing time and money in the problem, and then we get used to the problem, and then we don't really deal much more on it, and then we move on to the next problem, even if the first one's still there. Right? So we, we got really worried about, about um, pollution. We spent lots of money understanding how pollution causes harm and the mechanism of pollution, and then it's sort of like, oh, there's pollution. And yeah, I guess it's here. And, and, and then, oh, oh, something else has come up now, and funds shift. We are on an infectious disease. So when I went to do my PhD in epidemiology, I was advised not to do infectious diseases because the war on infectious disease was, was won. Yeah. It was the era of chronic diseases. And which yeah. is true of people. I mean, we die more of chronic diseases than infectious diseases, right? We die of diabetes and obesity. I, I used when I was, like I said to you, when I was on the fire department, a lot of what we did in a rural area was medical. I never put anybody on the back of the ambulance with an infectious disease. It was always self-abuse through too much smoking, too much drinking, obesity, right? All these sorts of things. So, so we tend to have this problem of, and wildlife is very bad for that. Wildlife disease, the history is, here's a disease. Man, that's a bad disease. Look at that disease. We should understand how it, where it's moving. Let's do surveillance. Set up a system to watch it track across the land. And then we start studying in more and more detail about Oh, you know, maybe this is how it causes the harm. And, and then it does this this way. Here's the mechanism of it. But because there are very few things that we could do about it, we just tend to do that. And then after a while, of course, the funders go, well, you're just telling me it's on the land. And so what are you going to do? Because if you think yeah. of any population, there's only a few things you can do to control the disease. You can kill everything, right? Yep. Mass cull. You can test the slaughter. You can vaccinate. You can vaccinate. You can treat everything with some drugs. You can manage their environment. You can manage the way we interact with them. You can quarantine and isolate them. So we think about wildlife. Mass culling can be very effective. Get rid of everything that's susceptible in the area. Uh, things can spread. Way you go. Well, that's, that's often socially unacceptable now. Uh, it's often bioecologically unacceptable, particularly with rare and endangered species. Selective slaughter. You have to be able to access and test everyone in the population with a reliable test. Most tests for wildlife aren't validated for all the species it's applied to because it's just not the money to do that. You can't access them all. Isolation and quarantine, 
pretty hard to fence off everything that they can't get out, especially for free-ranging wildlife. Mass vaccination, the only one we have right now is for rabies. Mm-hmm. We're working on one for plague for black-footed ferrets. But to, to distribute that and to maintain that vaccination every year after year is expensive. Mass treatment, while first finding a drug that works, is pretty rare. And then broadcasting it in the environment in a way that the animals will eat enough of it so it's effective. So now we're down to managing their environments and managing their social interactions with them. So you can see that when, when, the, when the wildlife health world has come from this very biomedical perspective, what we're really talking about here is social policy, environmental management, habitat protection, which isn't, hasn't been historically in that toolbox. Yeah. So, so, you know, if you have a, something that's focused on watching it, describing it, and burning it, at some point the funders are going to get are, are going to give up. So, so for example, again, when I was running the Canadian program, I would show up at our, our national capital and the joke would be, here comes a wildlife disease guy, another problem without a solution. I got a lot of other problems I can pay for solutions for. Why should we support you? Yeah. So we haven't necessarily dealt with, you know, we, we, so of course when something is exciting and people are worried about it and there's money for it, that's what people will work on. It's almost like CWD, really. You know, is there a, is there a solution to CWD, Craig? Depends okay. on what nature of the problem you're talking about and for whom. Is there a... So that's that. You see, this is the other thing that we rec- have to recognize is: is, is there a CWD problem in white-tailed deer for humans? Well, yeah, for some people there is. If you are very risk-adverse, and based on how other prions have acted, there is a possibility that could be a concern. So where it comes back down to Robbie is how safe the safe have to be. So in, in North America, when we talk, for example, about food safety, the general public thinks there's no risk. You can never have no risk with any food. A, a colleague of mine many years ago wrote a book called Food, Sex, and Salmonella. And he picked, he picked that title. It was, it was all about foodborne disease and the history of foodborne disease. And he said eating is like sex. Right? So if you think about your way from an infectious disease from the bug's perspective, you want, to, you want to have a way they can get yourself between two individuals, a way that they can't resist, a way that's really interesting. So that's why sexually transmitted diseases are not going away, because people want to have sex, right? And he said, eating is like having sex with the world, in that it's the most intimate relationship you can have with the world around you, because you're putting part of the world inside you, yep. whether that's a piece of lettuce or a piece of deer. And because that things lived out that world, and that world has other things in it, whether that's salmonella or dioxins, right? You can never have a zero risk food, right? So is there a problem? If I am highly risk adverse, yes, there's a problem, right? If I am somebody who's living for subsistence hunting in Northern Canada, where I know groceries are much more expensive to buy, they are highly processed foods that increase the risk of obesity and diabetes, and you had nobody's, somebody's only put a hypothesis of CWD so far with some monkey data that supports it good. My risk-benefit ratio was going to be different, right? So when you say there's a problem, this is the issue. People want a black and white answer. There is no black and white answer to this. Of course there's a problem. If there was no problem, why are we spending all this money on it? Now, the question is, is it a, is it a food safety problem? Is it a political problem? Is it a conservation problem? Is it a problem for somebody who makes their money off of a game, uh, like they're an outfitter and taking people out hunting? Is it a problem for somebody who wants to exert their indigenous rights? Is it a problem for somebody living in downtown New York? 
right? So we have this issue that there is going to be no clear answer on this, right? For any wildlife disease issue, because people bring their own perspectives and baggage to this. And the problem with wildlife, a wildlife health issue, I should say, is it's a concern of many people and owned by very few. So in other words, CWD in Canada has interests for um, Canadian Food Inspection Agency because of the uh, ungulate farming industry and exports. It has concerns for the Public Health Agency of Canada because of the potential risks from a, a prion and the benefits of country food. It has a concern for Environment Canada because they have to worry about national environmental issues provincially, but then provincially, they actually have the jurisdiction over deer because deer are non-migratory species. And so now we've got the provincial conservation and provincial egg and provincial health. So they all have a perspective on this issue, but there is not a single wildlife health agency that can have that integrative perspective on it, right? So wildlife health is a cross-agency issue, right? but it tends to have legislative ownership by you know, a single entity, game commissions or yeah, environment yeah, yeah. industries or whatever. So these make these very messy problems to deal with. Well, you're, you're touching on something that's happening here in Mississippi right now. So the commission, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but I'll, I'll just give you the, the short summary that a county got lifted out of the CWD management plan next to the river. And the reason being was... Um, there were two reasons here, and one was ignored and one was brought forth. The one that was ignored was, hey, you've got CWD-positive deer in Louisiana, and they could cross the river and enter into Claiborne County. And so if you allow baiting in Claiborne County, you've got the propensity of CWD deer interacting in those baiting sites. Not that any have been found in Claiborne County. The, the commissioner said, well, to your point, if the hunters have to stop baiting, what about the, the cattle feed that's just on the other side of the field? That's an that's agricultural issue. And, and so the answer was, well, you're the Wildlife Commission. You don't, we don't really have jurisdiction in the, with the agricultural agency, which is exactly your point. So I, I tell you, I, I remember many years ago, I was asked to come to a jurisdiction where there was a contentious disease issue in that people had tried to reintroduce a particular species onto the land to provide food for people for hunting. With that translocation, they introduced a pathogen, right? And this is winter tick, right? Okay. Winter, and this was on elk. And winter tick doesn't do much to elk. In the intervening years, some of the communities really liked hunting these elk. Some of them didn't like them, didn't like the taste of them, thought they shouldn't be on the land. Some of them began farming them. Then they recognized we've got this tick. And that tick isn't a big deal for the elk, but it's a huge deal for moose. And moose yeah. are the grocery store of this jurisdiction. People depend on moose. But I was asked to come up and talk about what a control program might be and all these sorts of things. And towards the end of it, they said to me, Craig, we're having a stakeholder meeting. And we're having a stakeholder meeting uh, tomorrow. Would you mind facilitating the meeting? And I hadn't done a lot of facilitation. I was still relatively early in my career. And for some reason, it's either arrogance or stupidity, I said yes. Because I knew the game farmers, different indigenous communities, the rural community, hunting community, were like at loggerheads for years. Yep. It, was, it was nasty. 
And I walked into that room and you've been to that meeting, you know, you go into that room and everybody's sitting back in the chairs with their arms crossed. Yeah. Like what is going to happen here? Oh, and not only what's going to happen, but I don't trust you and you <laughs> right? And I, you could smell the animosity. And I thought, what have I done? Well, it was a good career. Might as well ruin it now, Craig. You know, you're going to have this. <laughs> and I just thought, how am I going to get anything happening here? And I went around the room and said, do you care about moose? Yeah, I care about moose. Do you care about moose? Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's not worry about the winter tick. We all care about moose. What can we do to look after the moose? And at the end of the meeting, two-day meeting, the government said, we made more forward progress in those two days than over the last 10 years. Because they had focused all their time on arguing about what they disagreed on rather than the things they shared and valued and they could work yeah. together on. Right? And so we have tended to, to have this deficits approach to managing wildlife health in that it's not my jurisdiction. We don't know. I'm not responsible. Uh, you know, and, and if, if just because he's not doing it, why should I have to do it? As opposed to saying, what are the things that we value together that we can, yeah, we're not going to solve this, but what can we incrementally make it better on? Right? So back to our story about Obama and the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, he shouldn't have left all that. You should make it better. Even if it takes it back to as bad as it was before, you know, that's better. That's okay. Mm -hmm. It's not perfect. We can debate about it. I'm sure you got lots of guff when you were on that committee about what you were doing or shouldn't have been doing and why weren't you doing it and why were you doing. But we've, we, I mean, I've got to the point where things are happening too much, too often, too fast for us to argue about what we disagree on and not work on what we agree on. I mean, an example yep. for that up here is the salmon farming industry. I've been very involved in environmental impact assessments of the salmon farming industry, including one of the largest royal commissions ever held in Canada. And I can remember after the first one I did, and I, I don't know, of course, I'm just doing the health issues, right? They had the executive director of the Salmon Farmers Association and somebody from the, uh, an environmental NGO group on a phone-in radio show. And of course, I'm paraphrasing. But the paraphr I'm going to paraphrase to say they, they said on this, they were talking about my aspect, my part of the report, that they agreed on 70% of the recommendations I made. And then they spent the last 15 years arguing about the 30 and not acting on the 70. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? And I think, I think that's very, those two stories are very symptomatic of what we're doing in wildlife because we're not managing the health of wildlife. We're arguing about the causes and blame for a disease. Well, Craig, isn't that just, sort of writ large in anything that we're doing today in society today hunting like you're not in the hunting world but that is the hunting world you just like i think we can all agree about 70 percent of the time but we are at tooth and nail fighting over the 30 percent or 15 percent or whatever small percentage it is that we disagree about well yeah i mean we won't get into a podcast about global political changes but but i think i think part of it comes back down to training of guys like you and me in science because we are trained to be critical and we are trained to describe deficits and harms and problems. So when I teach students how to critically review the literature, you know, as an epidemiologist traditionally is find all the fatal flaws in the paper. I tell my students, every study has a flaw. The challenge is what useful information can you take from it despite the flaws? <laughs> right? So the authors thought there was some use, the editors thought there was some use. What can you commonly take away from this? And that's a very different approach to thinking about these sort of things, right? So part of it is we've had this history of finding problems, describing problems, assigning blame. Then we add on top of it that, that um, because wildlife is a public good in most places, certainly in North America, 
it's a government, as opposed to no, it's actually a public good means we all have a role in trying to work to keep things healthier, work together on that. So either, well, the, I can't do anything, it's a government's job. I mean, it's the same thing we're having with climate change right now. While the government has to fix us, well, a public good doesn't mean the government's the only one, it's the public. And so we've had this view of that started to create us and thems, as opposed yeah. to we's. Wildlife is a we issue, not an us and them issue, right? Craig, are you, and again, this may be a, 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 a loaded question, as most of my questions have been today. Um, it's almost like to put a finer point, are you optimistic about wildlife, health, human interactions as we move forward as a human race? It depends on what day you talk to me. <laughs> so it's interesting. It's interesting you use the word optimistic. I, I've had a, I, because I, that's uh, what society needs. Like, well, but, but this we, is, we don't look at that lens that way. But there's a difference between hope and optimism, right? What is that difference? I, I'm very hopeful that my grandkids will hear the spring chorus. I'm very hopeful they'll hear to be able to go out there and see those sea lines. I'm very hopeful for that. So hope means it's like it's like you know your favorite football team, right? And they just, they just never win because they don't have the money, they, can't, they don't have a good coach, their quarterback's injured, all these sorts of things. But every year you're hopeful because that's your team. Optimism is, oh, they got a new coach. The quarterback's better. I've got, I've got information to say it's possible now. So do right? you have information that it's so, possible that wildlife health in, in, in a human context is going in the right direction. I have signals that it could. Okay. Because you got me in a good day. Nice. Right? I like it. So, so, so I, my fundamental fear is um, other interests will exceed those of the wildlife's interest. So I'm a great believer in something that I call interspecies and intergenerational health equity. Right? So that's a nice academic term. But what I mean is actions to keep one species healthy, even if it's us, should not come at the cost of other species or other generations' ability to be well. Okay? But that's not how we work. We fundamentally have worked to increase the capacity for people to consume at the expense of other generations and other species. So my pessimism comes from, I don't see that political change happening quickly, <laughs> right? Because governments tend not to act until a specific economic interest is happening or a specific interest group is affected. And we see that all over the climate change issue right now. I mean, um, so that's a problem. But my optimism comes that I am increasingly seeing um, the upcoming generation going, well, no we actually want to be able to have access to things in the future. And to do that, we have to protect the things they need to be well, right? So you can't, so we're, we're starting to see in the wildlife health community a shift from what's that and how does it cause harm to how do we reduce the risks so they don't get sick and how do we protect the resources so they can stay well? That conversation is starting to happen because the oh, problem, good. Robbie, is, is, is the issues are coming at an unprecedented rate. Because that th we've never been more connected socially, we've never Correct. been. We don't have an environment that's been changing faster, so it's going to be an unpredictable, uncertain future. We're going to be surprised, and the only way you can deal with that is to keep things well. So to protect wildlife health, you have to keep them healthy, and healthy has nothing to do with disease. Healthy means I can access the needs for daily living, 
food, water, shelter, security. I can cope with changes and stresses that come to me, right? That could be, could be a disease. It could be, it could be over-exploitation, all those sort of things. And I can meet the expectations that we have for them, right? So in Canada, mm-hmm. you know, a, a healthy salmon population means there's enough for us to kill in the fisheries, right? But people are starting to change and say, well, no, actually salmon are a huge contributor to mainland nitrogen by bringing marine nitrogen up. They're important culturally. They're important. So we're starting to reframe what that means to be healthy. But, but then all of a sudden you can see you as an ecologist, you as that landscape ecologist are critical wildlife health person because you're protecting some of those needs for daily living by making sure that marsh is there and functional and sustainable. So, yep. wa- so wildlife disease is the job of a limited number of specialists. Wildlife health is a team sport. I totally agree. Right? And that, yep. is, that narrative is starting to change. And that's the one that gives me a little bit of optimism. I love it. Craig Stevens, I knew this conversation was going to be thought-provoking, intellectual, and also full of humor, because that's what I got from you the first time we interacted. Um, I hope we can do this again. I, I, this, you know, if something pops up on the radar, you know, as it relates to wildlife disease, epidemiology, or any actual, any topic, I would value your opinion on it and have a, a good back and forth academic discussion. Well, I'm glad it was uh, useful. I'm glad you found it. I hope your uh, listeners found it useful as well. I think that, uh, you know, if we just leave with everybody realizing that, you know, it's our collective responsibility to maintain this collective good and get out of the blame game, that's going to shift us into even higher optimism. So I'm glad you totally let me agree. Uh, allow me to rant for an hour. I loved it. Loved it. Thanks, Craig. You're very welcome. Well, that's it for today. Appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.